Hi, this is Whitney Johnson, and you are listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tampi Nasir, welcoming you to another episode of my leadership podcast, Leadership Biz Cafe. And my guest today is author, writer, and management thinker, Whitney Johnson. Whitney is the co-founder of Rose Park Advisors, an investment firm she co-founded with renowned innovation thinker Clayton Christensen. She's also a former award-winning Wall Street analyst and was recently recognized by Fortune magazine as one of the 55 most influential women on Twitter, as well as being a 2015 Best in Talent finalist for the Management Thinkers 50. Many of you probably also recognize her name from her numerous contributions to Harvard Business Review or for her work being covered in such media outlets as the BBC, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal. Whitney is also the author of two books, her latest being Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work, which will be the focus of my conversation today with Whitney. So hi, Whitney. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Now, in your first book, you dared readers to dream in order to ensure they are living the life they're meant to live. Now, in your new book, Disrupt Yourself, you encourage people to use disruptive innovation to transform their professional lives. Now, typically, when we talk about disruptive innovation, it tends to be from the business lens of how these game-changing moments or developments can literally upend and overtake established models or constructs in order to create a new way of doing business or providing a service. Netflix and Uber are two such examples that come to mind. So to help get our listeners in the right frame of mind here, what do you mean by tapping into the power of disruptive innovation to drive our professional growth and evolution? It's a great question. And I think it might make sense to start by telling you my story around learning about the frameworks of disruption. So I was um, an an equity analyst covering uh, telecom and media in Latin America and specifically looking at America Mobile, which is now the fourth largest cellular company in the world. And what was interesting for me is that my job obviously was to put a buy or a sell recommendation on these stocks, and I had to look at how much I thought wireless penetration could increase. And what I found is that when I first started covering this company, you had wireline penetration at 15%, and you had wireless penetration at 25%, so it already seemed really high. And I thought, okay, how much more can this actually grow? And so I started looking at the demographics of Mexico, and I thought maybe possibly it could get to 40%. Well, what happened is I put out my forecasts. I thought I was being really aggressive, and yet the numbers just kept beating my forecasts over and over and over again. And I thought, what is happening? because it's just doing so much better than I had anticipated, notwithstanding the demographics. And this is around 2004, and I come across the book, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And this book, I realized, helped me understand exactly what I was seeing. As you noted a moment ago, an Uber or a Netflix comes in at the low end of the market, the quality is inferior, which was certainly the case with wireless. The sound quality was not very good. But because it was doing a job, that people wanted done in this particular instance, they wanted to be able to communicate and they couldn't afford to otherwise it was able to get this foothold and just be able to accelerate 
um, its growth and, and overtake Wireline in a very significant way. And so I understood that these frameworks of Clayton were helping me understand exactly what was going on, that I had this front row seat on wireless disrupting Wireline in Mexico and then saw it happen throughout Latin America. Well, as I began to dive into these frameworks and I really dove into the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, I remember having this aha moment of thinking to myself, these frameworks, they don't just apply to companies and countries and products and services. They apply to me as an individual. And the real aha moment was, is here I was at Merrill Lynch, very much at the top of my game. I was an award-winning analyst. I had really in many senses peaked in terms of what I could earned and in some ways what I could learn. And I realized that if I was going to, in fact, um, do something and do even more and have more satisfaction in my life, that I was going to need to disrupt myself and go to the low end and, and, and in order to be able to accomplish some of the things that I wanted to do that I couldn't get there from where I was. And so that was really this aha moment for me that companies don't just disrupt, individuals do. It's true when we think about it that a lot of times the most successful people that we see in business and in other industries and other fields of pursuit, it's really those who kind of start in one school of education or experience and then they make that jump into another field. I mean, you, for example, you didn't actually come from a business perspective, but you actually have a background in music. Right, right. That's right. And I think... You know, that that's actually an interesting question that you raise. And I think there are certainly these ideas of, you know, what does that mean and why, you know, why is that possible? And one of the things that I talk about is this notion of a distinctive strength. And so you have to, in order to be able to be successful, um, you need to play to your strengths. But I find that you're actually even more successful when you can play to your distinctive strengths, meaning those things that you do well that other people within your sphere do not. So, for example, in my case on Wall Street, I had to get these pay to play skills of building a financial model and being able to make a you know, value a stock and make a decision as to whether or not that I felt it was a buy or a sell. But what really allowed me to be successful were my distinctive strengths, things that I'd learned as a liberal arts, as a music major, of being able to see connections across silos, of being able to connect people, um, whether they're investors to the CEOs of corporations like a Carlos Slim, and be able to look across the landscape and make a stock call. And so it was this fish out of water piece of me that allowed me to be actually not just a good analyst, but an excellent analyst. Right. And I think there's an important point that you bring up here that, that's good for us to focus on, because I think for many of us, we don't really have a clear picture of what our distinctive strengths or our real strengths are. And in fact, some of the talks I've given, I point out how we typically tend to assign people work based on what they show that they're good at. But that's not necessarily what makes them feel internally energized and motivated because you're not doing work that's connected to their unique or, as you refer to, distinctive strengths. That's why, I like in your book, you make that point that we have to be careful here in making those assessments about our real strengths that we don't dismiss the things that come to us easily or that are obvious to us because it might not be easy or obvious to those around us. But exactly, exactly. For you, it was, it was easy for you to figure out what that distinctive strength of how you could apply your education, the liberal arts, and your education and music and f use that to figure out how to build that successful award-winning career at Merrill Lynch. 
what were the tools you used to discover and better understand yeah. what your distinctive strengths are that we possess? And how do we go about then employing that in bringing that power disruptive innovation to our work? Well, I, I think the first thing I would say to you is I'm not so sure that it is easy. In fact, um, I would say that um, I think our distinctive strengths are easy because they make us a fish out of water. But I think our actual strengths are pretty difficult because we tend to do them so reflexively well that they're very easy to overlook. Um, but what I will say is I've come up with a few tricks and tips, if you will, to help people figure out what their strengths are so that they can them put themselves in a situation where they will be distinctive. So the first is what makes you feel strong. And that um, is building on Marcus Buckingham, um, the strengths finder. Now go discover your strengths. And this idea of what makes you feel strong is, you know, what, when you're going throughout your workday, what makes you feel invigorated? What makes you feel inquisitive? What makes you feel successful? And a hack for that I've discovered is that what's my go-to activity when I'm feeling overwhelmed and out of control? Because, and I'm not talking about like self-sabotaging things like eating too much, but like what's that activity? And so if you think about what do I do when I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I think if I can just get to my desk and do this thing, well, that thing is probably something that makes you feel strong because in order to feel in control, you want to feel strong. So for some people, it might be making phone calls or going to lunch and connecting with someone. For other people, I've had them say to me, you know what, if I can just dive into my spreadsheets, I feel strong again. And so if you can take a look at that go-to activity, that tends to be a really good clue for you. A second thing is to look at what exasperates you when you're working with other people. The frustration of genius is in believing that if it's easy for you, it must be easy for everyone else. If you can take a look and say, you know what, I'm working with these people and I'm realizing I'm really frustrated. It might not be that they're incompetent. I mean, they might be, but it may just be that you're really, really good at this. And so that's, again, you know, a signal of what you're really good at. And then the third hack for me is to look at what do other people say you do well? And for example, have you looked on your LinkedIn profile recently? Like, what do people say you do well? And I know it's not a perfect thing, but there's this perception that you do well. And I'll give you an example from my own life. I have one of my highest ratings on LinkedIn is strategy. Well, I would never have said I do strategy. In fact, there's, it's nowhere on my LinkedIn profile. That's never been in my job description ever. And yet people think I'm good at strategy. So that may be one of my strengths. Another one is what are those compliments? And you alluded this to this a minute ago, Tanvir, is this idea of what compliments have I heard so many times that I actually just dismiss them? And in fact, I think to myself, if I hear this again, oh, if I hear that compliment one more time, why can't they compliment me on this thing that I worked really, really, really hard to learn? Well, they're complimenting you because you just do it so naturally well. But again, you dismiss it because for you, it's as natural as breathing. And so that's one of the things that I really encourage people to think about is pay attention to those compliments that they ignore because it's very likely that's one of your superpowers and it may not even be on your resume because it was so easy you overlooked it. Right, absolutely. And I mean, this is really the key for us to figuring out where are those opportunities for us to disrupt our approach to what are the areas that we can uh, find new opportunities for growth and evolution in our career and in our professional lives? And one thing I actually enjoyed in your book is how you actually create a map for us to figure out 
that process of disruptive innovation. And it's something we've all been exposed to. And that's that notion of the S curve, where we have that beginning point where there's a small incline at the start. And then there's that rapid upswing that happens over a very short period of time. And then you have that gentle plateauing effect at the higher level. And most of us have seen that, of course, in terms of disruptive innovation, in terms of end user adoption of a new product or service. But here, what I liked is how you use it to help us understand the journey we need to take to use disruptive innovation in our careers effectively. And one of the first steps, in addition to understanding our distinctive strengths that you point out in understanding how to use this to guide us through that process, is that we need to appreciate that we can't simply dive into the unknown, but we have to have that clear understanding of why we want to make this shift, which is where I think understanding our distinctive strengths comes into play, because it's helping us figure out what's the strength we're bringing to the table. But then you also point out at this early point, we also have to understand where are their unmet needs that our distinctive strengths can fit into. But the challenge I could see for many people, though, is even if I understand what my strengths are, how do we push ourselves outside of that comfort zone? Many of us probably are in that higher plateau area where we're feeling like our careers, our ability to lead our teams is going quite well, so I don't want to rock the boat. So how do we push ourselves at that early stage outside of that comfort zone while still making sure we have that clear, practical understanding of where we want or need to go? Well, I think the first um, question I would ask is, you you mentioned the word why a few times, and I I think that that's a really important uh, question that we need to be asking ourselves, because oftentimes when people are at the top of their learning curve, and they're, you know, they've kind of, they've hit this mastery stage, they feel like they can do things pretty well and pretty easily, they say, I, you know, I can't jump to a new curve. And I think one of the things that we where we want to start here is ask why, why we can't jump to a new curve um, and and use the five why techniques because sometimes frequently people will say, well, I can't jump to a new curve because I can't afford to financially. And that may be the case, but I know there have certainly been instances where people you know, realize they've got like 10 years of savings in the bank and they can't jump to a new curve. And so financial considerations really aren't the question. So there's something else going on. And it's oftentimes a sense of they will feel a loss of self in some way or another. And what I would argue there is that's why you need to have dreams, because when you have dreams of things that you want to be, of who you can become, not who you are, that dream makes you a problem solver. It allows you to hunger for a better life, and it gives you the courage you need to think about jumping to a new curve. You may need to plan as you go, so you've run these two plans in tandem, but it does give you the courage to think like, okay, I want to be different than I am today. And and going to this idea of unmet needs, almost always when people are jumping to new curves, they're not doing it for functional reasons. They're doing them for emotional reasons. They want to feel more satisfied. They want to feel happier, et cetera. So to the tactical now of this question that you just asked is, you absolutely need to play to your strengths, your distinctive strengths, and be willing to own what you do best because we do tend to overvalue what we're not and undervalue what we are. But then there's another piece of this that I think is worth touching on is to be willing to take on market risk. Market risk being you don't know if there are customers for your ideas or products or services, um, whereas with competitive risk you do, and there could be competitors, but you have to gauge if you can compete and win. Whereas if you're willing to take on market risk, you're willing to try to meet unmet needs, to play where other people aren't playing, it feels less 
less certain, but in fact, because you're playing where no one else is playing, you're going to be the first mover. You're going to be the one who's creating the market and you're more likely to be successful in that particular scenario, according to the theory of disruption. And you know, there's actually a point I want to circle back to and you just mentioned what I thought, which is so important. And you said that the goal we're after here when we're tapping into the power of disruptive innovation is it's about what we want to become as opposed to focusing on what we are now. And I think that's a lot of times where we run into that problem of embracing change. It's because we're kind of thinking in terms of our current status quo, our current position or our current authority or influence we have in our organization, our community. And what is the risk to that we're giving to that as opposed to what we're looking to create going forward? What is it that we're after? And that's why I enjoyed actually in your book, when you talk about competitive risk and market risk and how it really is the market risk that we want to be focusing on, because that's what allows us to understand if we're moving sufficiently away from our current status quo so as to provide us with that real room for growth and learning opportunities, that's going to make us feel like, you know, we're actually making progress in our lives. Right, absolutely. And and again, though, as I, I said a moment ago, it is definitely scarier because, you know, if you think about it in a business context is, you know, when there's competitive risk, you, you're going to have a colleague and they're going to come to you and be like, there's a huge market opportunity. Let's go after it. I've got all these projections. It, we know exactly what the market looks like. Well, in that particular instance, you know that someone scoped out the market. There's probably a kingpin and it's not you, but there's a certainty around it because you know exactly how big the market is. And in the case of market risk and trying something new with our lives and our careers and our businesses, we don't know if there's even a market there. And so it's like saying, go off, discover, and you don't know what it's going to look like. You can't scope it out at all. And so it feels scarier. But again, if you go back to the theory of disruption, you know that if you're willing to take on market risk, your odds of success are six times higher. Um, you still may fail, but your odds of success are much higher than if you take on competitive risk. And so it's a way to help you kind of deal with that fear of uncertainty to know that your odds are going to go up if you are willing to deal with the uncertainty. It actually reflects something you mentioned in your book, which is that despite our tendency to favor the familiar known and, and avoiding that fear of uncertainty of what this is going to lead to, research you show in your book from both the business and neuroscience fields have shown that doing something different, something new, is not only less risky in the long run, but it leads to a more satisfying career in life, which when you think about it is something we see in many of today's successful leaders and organizations where they are actually constantly challenging the boundaries for what they're known for because they're continuing that earlier quest to seek out new opportunities for learning and growth. Netflix, for example, initially, their model was that we would mail you the DVDs that you wanted to watch and you just put them in the envelope we give it to you and just drop it off your mailbox to return to us. And no one realizes that that's what their original model was because then they suddenly morphed to, well, now we're going to stream online. And now they've morphed again to saying, no, now we're going to be a content creator. We're going to create original programming and we're going to challenge established players in that entertainment industry to say we can also provide that kind of content. And we're going to change how content is delivered where it's not going to be delivered over the span of months, but we're going to give it all to you at one shot and you can decide how you want to consume that. So again, there's that kind of an example of the market risk where Netflix was clearly changing things, changing how people view content, consume content and so forth without necessarily having the competitive risk to help them understand was there actually going to be interest in those kinds of offerings. Yeah, and that is a brilliant example, isn't it? It really is. It captures that whole idea of disruption and market risk beautifully. 
the thing too, I also want to, when we talk about these distinctive strengths, is that we have to make sure, of course, that we're tying it, as we said, to that unmet need. And obviously, as you pointed out, this is not going to be an easy road ahead because not only do we have that uncertainty and we're kind of afraid because we don't really have, like you said, someone coming in saying we have the proof from other competitors that have shown that there is definite interest in this. But there's also, from a personal level, we have to then admit that we have to open ourselves to not only learning new skills because we're taking on this new area, but we also have to navigate this new unknown territory. And in your book, this is where things get really interesting because you mentioned how at this step in the process of disruptive innovation, we actually have to rely on something that most of us want to avoid, and that is constraints. <laughs> and so how exactly, because I'm sure a lot of people, when they hear this going, wait, what? We, we want to <laughs> accept constraints. How at this early stage of the disruption innovation process, Whitney, can constraints help us? Because it, it seems very counterintuitive to this process, since many of us think of innovation as being a result of freeing ourselves from established or deeply ingrained approaches or points of view. Again, let's go back to the Netflix model. I mean, it doesn't look like you would think they were using constraints to have those adaptations and disruptions to their business model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the constraints, you're right, it is counterintuitive. Um, two things I'll say there is the first is if you think about um, whenever you're trying something new and think about a child, they're learning to walk, they, they have things that they're bumping up against the floor, the couch, etc. And those constraints are actually giving them information. So whenever you put yourself in a box, you get a lot of information because you're bumping up against things. And so whenever you're trying something new, you want and you need lots and lots of feedback. And so rather than those constraints making it, you know, making it more difficult for you to climb a curve, they actually make it easier because you're getting feedback. So for example, you want to jump to a new curve. If you have as much time as much money, as much buy-in from people around you, as much expertise as you could possibly ever hope for, where do you start? I mean, you have no idea where to start at all. But if instead you, you say, you know what, I've got sort of six months to make this work, or I've got a year to make this work, and I've got $10,000 in the bank to make this work. And these are the five things that I know how to do really, really well. And here's a problem that I think needs to be solved. All of a sudden now you've made, you've given yourself some constraints to some things to bump up against. And so within that box that you have, it's much easier for you to say, okay, well, based on these, this box that I'm inside, how, and this problem that I want to solve, how can I play where no one else is playing? And what strengths do I have that will help me do that? And what I would argue is that, in fact, you don't actually discover what your real strengths are, your best strengths are, until you have constraints. Because otherwise, you're, you're able to rely on other things that you're able to get more easily, and it, it doesn't force you to dig deep enough. And so I let me just tell you a quick story around this. There was a, a great um, analysis done in Entrepreneur Magazine a few years ago, actually in 2007, and they looked at the 500 fastest growing companies in, in the United States. And that was interesting. But what was really interesting to me was that they looked at how these companies had funded their growth. And mind you, 61% of these companies were profitable within the first year, and it's 500. So it's a big sample size. What they found is that only 28% of these companies had access to bank loans 
only 18% had access to equity, and only 4%, 4% had access to venture capital. So we now know that at least 50% and as much as 72% of these companies had had to bootstrap their businesses, what they had on hand, the resources that they had on hand. And so my question, and this goes back to the question of constraints as you're trying to disrupt, is were these companies successful in spite of or because of their constraints? I think the answer is clear. It's because of. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, if you think about it, and I think there's a real gem of a nugget there that's worth emphasizing again, is that we really, in terms of disruptive innovation, have to shift our understanding and perspective of constraints from being something that's an obstacle to really being a source of feedback, right? Because yeah. as you point out, it's what's allowing us to be more focused because it's limiting what we're paying attention to so we can actually make some progress, right? If we had all these resources, we had all this time, then we have so many things we can be focusing on that we can't really feel like we're making any traction or progress. But by having those limitations on, okay, well, I only have this much money, then that's what we're going to use to focus on saying, okay, we got to be very judicious in how we employ it. And Tender, you know, something I just thought of as you were talking, I think about, you know, I have these days where I long for, you know, this blank page of a day, right? Nothing on my calendar. <laughs> And yet on those days, I don't get as much done mm. as on the days where I know I have like three things that are due tomorrow. I am so much more productive. And so to your point is constraints focus us. Right, exactly. So with that in mind, Whitney, what are the kinds of strengths we should be making ourselves more welcoming towards? And how exactly can we make that mind shift? So now we are, in fact, seeing constraints as being that source of feedback, as being that critical advantage to our growth, as opposed to being that obstacle that most of us tend to view it as at that very early stage when we're trying to change our approach or what it is we're trying to achieve. Well, I'll, I'll give you an, a personal example. And um, I actually don't think I've shared this before. So it's breaking news, Tanvir. So, uh, <laughs> we got a scoop here. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a scoop. So I... You know, when I um, when I sold my stake in Rose Park Advisors, so I had you know co-founded this investment firm with Clayton Christensen. So I sold my stake, and and um, and I was you know really becoming an entrepreneur again, like jumping to a new curve. And so early on, there was this question of like, okay, I know some of the things that I want to be doing. I want to write my book, and I want to go speak. But it was early days, and so. Um, I, I was like, I have to make money because I'm the primary breadwinner. And so like, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, my husband, again, my husband's like the best truth teller in the world. He says to me, all right, so let me get this straight. You coach people all the time, like all the time. And, and, and you know, it's one of your strengths. Like people will tell you continually, like you, you are brilliant at this. And I, and I don't use that term lightly. Like you're really, really good at it. And I was like, yeah, but ugh, whatever, like going back to this compliment, like, yeah, people tell me this all the time, but whatever. And you know what? I don't really value coaching because coaching's a soft skill. It's not a hard skill, like building a financial model. And so part of what happened there is because I had this constraint of needing to put food on the table while I was in this interim phase, I started to tap into my strengths, my distinctive strengths, which was coaching. And I started coaching people. And guess what? I not only was good at it, it turned out secret, secret, I liked it. And so I think that that's really important for us to be aware is that when we have those constraints, they do help us tap into 
Sorry, when we have constraints, they help us tap into our strengths. And it turns out that if we're willing to own those strengths, we actually will end up doing things that make us feel strong and happy and able to jump to new curves and, and in the process probably help other people jump to new curves. Now, I do think we should address the elephant in the room because I don't want us to seem like, oh, this is rose-colored glasses and, oh, once we get our strengths, find an untapped need, we're going to become another successful model that people are going to be <laughs> talking about, like Netflix and so forth. And I know from that laugh, you know exactly where I'm heading because you do delve into it both in sharing personal stories and in examples. And that is that there is going to be those moments where we are going to fail in that process of trying to learn that new S-curve, of learning those new skills and finding those unmet needs and how to deploy our distinctive strengths towards them. And this is something that, you know, there's a lot of being written about, and I've written about it uh, for my website about how we can deal with failure and so forth. But here it's a little different because we're really talking about putting people outside their comfort zone where, you know, that's the big fear, like we are going to fail. But how do we, when we face that failure, where we're really trying something new, how do we make sure that's not going to cause us to retreat and say, well, you know what, didn't work out? And when actually should we be considering retreating? Because maybe that's that failure is telling us that, okay, maybe we have to take a different attack, a different approach, because that's not really tapping into our distinctive strengths, or re- that's maybe not the unmet need that we need to be focusing on. Okay, well... So let, let's start. I mean, as you said, the elephant in the room, I, a couple of thoughts here. The first is, um, you know, I didn't even start working. Um, I didn't graduate from college until I was 27. So you can imagine because I had, you know, taken a long time to graduate and I had worked while I was in college and I'd gone on a mission for my church. And so and and I started as a secretary. So I did not be, get onto the professional track, if you will, of, of being an investment banker until I was 31, 31. Now, you can imagine that I, in many days I felt like a failure because I was now on an investment banking analyst with a lot of people who were 10 years younger than me, 10 years younger. And so I had to sort of look at this and did I feel like a failure? And, and to your point, and also, oh, by the way, I've been fired and I've backed businesses that have been imploded and I bombed speeches in front of hundreds of people where I had so much sweat dripping down my face. I looked like I'd run three miles. So I am well acquainted with failure. What I would say and the thing that I think we all need to think about and be aware of is the reason that we feel so much shame around failure is that in our society and certainly in the Western society, and it's even actually more acute for girls than it is for boys, is that our identity is directly tied to our successes. And so put a success in the, up on the board, then your identity or your sense of self-worth goes up, and they're positively correlated. And so then when we fail, then what that means is that we our sense of identity diminishes and we feel of less worth. And so one of the things I think is really important in helping us deal with the failures that we will have as we're trying to climb new curves and make things happen is that if we're aware that our, we need to un- decouple our identity from our successes and failures, that's going to make it easier for us. It will be, it, it's the quest of a lifetime. I think if we're able to say I am less ashamed by my failures today than I, I was two years ago, then we're making tremendous progress. But it is something that we need to 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 be aware of. 
Um, I'll stop there and then you can, because I didn't answer your other question of, you know, is this telling us we should try something new? But I'll stop there and we could come back to that if you want. Well, that's the thing. I mean, not all failures are equal, just as not all successes are equal. Some we had to really fight our way through to get it. And other times it just was pretty much handed to us just because the organization we were with already did the legwork. But there are moments where we can say, okay, here's a failure we can learn from. And what we learn from it can vary because sometimes what it le- helps us to learn is, okay, to change our tactic or approach or wait, I didn't realize that was a, a hidden gap in my awareness or my knowledge that I now have to go learn about because that's what's going to help me ensure I don't repeat that mistake. But other times it could really be that this is our way of saying, well, you know what? We gave it our shot. This didn't work exactly. and we got to do something differently. And Probably one of the best examples I can think of off the top of my head right now is what we see with artists, whether it's musicians or actors, where they experiment with a different musical motif or they try a different genre of acting just because they want to stretch their acting skills. They want to see what how they can resonate with their audience, their fan base. And sometimes people get like, wow, I, I never imagined them being in that kind of role. I never imagined them doing that kind of music. And other times it really doesn't land. But the best groups, the best actors, they learn from it saying, okay, well, I'm not going to necessarily do that kind of music or that kind of role again, but there's lessons I can take from it that I can then apply to the things that I do before. So what are the things that we can look for to help us know? Because as you said, especially here in the Western world, we put a lot of negative emphasis on failure. So a lot of times when that happens, we just really want to retreat into ourselves and kind of not want to touch it again because it really is painful. And it's understandable that it is painful. But Mm -hmm. so how do we make sure that while we accept that pain and work through it, we still come out saying, okay, what is the thing I'm going to learn from it in terms of, is this something for me to learn to keep going forward? Or is this telling me that I have to switch the S curve of disruptive innovation that I'm taking? Yeah, so I think, uh, so a couple thoughts there. The first is, um, in terms of, you know, am I, do I feel like I'm on the wrong curve, but I'm really not? (laughs) I think there's that question. Um, I think if you're, if you are on a curve, and you're at the low end of the curve, and you're just iterating and getting lots of information and feedback, and you're really playing to your distinctive strengths, and, and you find that it's really hard but it's not frustrating, like the work inherently is not frustrating for you, then oftentimes perseverance is simply called for. You just have to keep going. Um, And I think, um, so, so that would be the first thing I would say. I'd say there are other times where we have these like deeply held desires of things that we want to accomplish. Like we want to find our voice, right? You know, I want to sing. I want to be on American Idol. I want to be on The Voice. And, and I think that's a great metaphor for us wanting to find our voice. But the fact is, and if you go back to Harry Potter and the Mirror of Erised, right, it'll show you your deepest desires. But if you just kind of keep looking back behind the mirror, Harry couldn't have his parents but he could have people that loved him. And I would say the same is true for us. We may have this deep desire to discover our voice and it may not be on American Idol. Like I've always wanted to learn to sing, but I don't have a very good voice, but I've found my voice by by writing and I've been able to find my voice by speaking. And so I think that you, if you do kind of peel it back and say, all right, well, first of all, if it's frustrating, if it's not frustrating, but it's hard, and I'm playing to my strengths, and I found this market, I may need to just persevere for a little longer. If it turns out that, in fact, I want to find my voice, but I'm not really playing to my strengths, and it just may not work, there are other ways for us to have that voice come out. And if you will continue to iterate, you will eventually find it. 
that that and that goes to my sort of fundamental belief that if we will continue to iterate, we will find some way to climb the right curve of learning for us. In our discussion right now here about failure, it's bringing to mind what I think in our conversation is actually, ironically, the flip side of this coin of failure. And it's a variable you write about in your book that I think it's important for us to discuss because not only because there's a lot being written about it in terms of whether people belonging to a particular generation or race show a strong tendency to exhibit it, but also in terms of that flip side that might actually send us towards failure and not being able to readily embrace it and learn from it. And that is fighting our sense of entitlement, which Mm -hmm. you refer to in your book as being the innovation killer. So in terms of driving disruptive innovation in our work and in terms of making us being more open to, you know, in those moments when we are going to fail, to recognizing what we can learn from it, using it as another source of feedback, what is the danger of entitlement that we need to pay attention to and how does this creep in, considering that we are talking about taking that less familiar road, which again, would seem to be counterintuitive in terms of us feeling like we're owed something? Yeah, I think... You know, I think entitlement is part of the human condition, to be honest. I mean, and I think, um, and it's certainly a bigger problem in worlds, in in the parts of society that are more affluent and more, um, have more resources. Um, There's been research that's been done that the more the more resources that we have, like the more money we have, the more we think we deserve what we have. And so it's like, okay, well then that, that becomes a problem. So, so entitlement at its core is this belief that I, you know, I exist, therefore I'm entitled. Um, and we tend to like to say that millennials are entitled and, you know, sometimes they are, but the fact is, is that we all struggle with entitlement. Like we just, we deserve things and it can be emotional entitlement it can be cultural entitlement. I think, you know, in the in the context of the conversation that we're having and, and speaking to businesses, et cetera, I think there's this cultural entitlement where, you know, we need to feel the sense of belonging. The sense of belonging gives us the confidence that we need to scale new curves. But what happens is that that sense of belonging can lead to a very closed network. And when you have a closed network, you hear the same ideas over and over again, and you're much less likely to have breakthrough ideas that will allow you to scale the curve. And so, a very simple way of actually battling that entitlement is to open up our networks. And when I say open up our networks, it's easy to think about this in this expansive sort of largesse way of like, I'm going to let this little person inside of my network. But I'm actually referring to the open up our networks where we are willing to put ourselves in a one down position and we don't actually, we're not the expert. And we reach out to someone and say, I don't know how to do this. Do you know how to do this? And we get their expertise. And by being willing to push back, you know, push beyond our current intellectual borders, we're more likely to have breakthrough ideas. And so, so this entitlement, again, like I said, it comes in many guises. There's the cultural, it can be emotional, it can be intellectual. But if we're willing to battle against this belief that I exist, therefore I deserve, therefore I should just get it and I'm not willing to work, then we're much more likely to move into hyper growth of, of disruption. Right. And I think you had an excellent point you brought up there where when you're talking about opening your networks, it's all about finding that person who's more experienced than you, has the greater expertise in a particular area than you, because it really helps to reframe our understanding about where we are in position of that S-curve. And I think also that makes it easier. That's why I think this is the flip side of failure. It makes it easier for us to accept failure because we're kind of reminding ourselves that we still have a number of areas where we need to learn and understand stuff so that we are being more open to saying, well, we got to change this. 
we got to change that. And again, looking at any disruptive, innovative organization today, you can see that that's a lot of the thought processes that they're using where they don't get caught up in that notion of this is what's fueled our past successes. It's allowed us to do very well for the past couple of years, past couple of decades. So we're not going to change that model because to change that model affects our current revenue streams, which is why we see so many established companies flailing about because they can't get out of that mindset of thinking that there's others out there who have the expertise, who have ideas that we could benefit from and help us to shift our understanding of how we can do things. In fact, a number of the organizations I noticed that they're talked about as being, these are the ones we want to copy and emulate in terms of disruptive innovation. A lot of them will talk about how they create these networks with companies and individuals completely outside of their industry. Just because they want to understand, well, how is it that you interact with customers? How is it that you manage your distribution channels? How is it that you manage marketing your products or your services? Because even though it's a completely unrelated field, there is things that they can learn from there. And I think that's what makes you be more open to getting the feedback from constraints and from failure because that open network's making it so you don't feel entitled. You're not looking Mm -hmm. at your successes as saying, well, I should be able to achieve this, but you're really saying going forward, what are the things that I can learn from and help me evolve and become stronger? Yeah, that's a great summary of that. Yeah, I agree. Well, Whitney, I have to say it was very interesting to see your adaptation of disruptive innovation in terms of professional growth and evolution. And what resonated with me personally was how in the various stories you shared in your book, both those from your own personal journey and from others who've embraced disruptive innovation in terms of their career path, was how I could see a lot of the steps I've taken in my own journey. In fact, I was once again asked at the end of a leadership keynote I gave in Vancouver how I got into speaking and writing about leadership. And as I shared my own journey, which is like yours, where I started with an education that's not in the business or leadership field, I could see that fascination in people's eyes because I think we're all starting to understand that our lives are not linear. You can't chart it on a map or on a graph as a series of fixed or predictive steps. But rather, as you share today, we have to be open disrupting ourselves to jumping off that curve we're riding to learn about a new one so we can become stronger contributors and leaders in our organization. And judging from the comments I'm sure you get every time you share your story about the different things that you've done and the the different failures and the different life lessons you've gained, I think there's something reassuring and hopeful in seeing how someone learned to do that and how making that jump, that change, being open to those constraints as being a source of feedback, of using failure to help us understand what's the right path to take. And opening up our networks to finding people who we can really learn from and understand, okay, where where do I need to go next can help us really lead to a more fulfilling and satisfying career in life. And I think the various points you shared today really helped show my listeners how they can begin that process for themselves. And of course, they really have to check out your book to learn how to navigate the rest of this process because we only really started that very early part of that S-curve of the process of applying the power of disruptive innovation in, in their own professional lives. Yeah, now you have me curious. Um, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to learn more about how you started your career. But tell me what you majored in in college. Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing that people are always surprised to hear is I don't have an MBA. I have a master's in science in the field of pathology. So I'm a pathologist by education. Um, yeah, and I used to. I originally started working at one of the hospitals here in Montreal as a pathologist. So I was working and diagnosing patients. Then after that, I started working as a clinical embryologist where I was treating patients for infertility. 
which one of the nice perks of that job was uh, when my wife would take me to her office parties and people would wander over to me and you got that typical networking question of what do you do for a living? I'd always like to answer with a complete deadpan face. I make babies for a living. <laughs> And my wife hated it because the people would go off to my wife saying, okay, what's up with your husband? <laughs> and That's she, fantastic. She hated it. I said, well, you know, it's a, so much easier than getting very technical about it because then people's eyes glaze over. I don't know what you're talking about. And it's succinct and to the point. Right. Um, right. And, it, and it's true. And it's true. It's very true. And so after that, I went into the biotech field where I started working in management field. And after that, I decided to go off like you and go into business for myself. And in the process of networking with different groups, people started having issues with how do I grow my business? How do I lead these teams? And that coming from experience where I've worked with multidisciplinary teams almost my entire career, I'm used to working with people who have different goals, different objectives, different perspectives. I was able to bring that to the table and there was that unmet need that I started noticing people kept coming to me with those questions. And then I realized that that was that distinctive strength because people kept coming to me, giving me that feedback. Yeah. And so that's what led me to now work in the leadership sphere. That's a fantastic story. And you knew how to make babies. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One and you thing can think too. to make babies. So yeah, um, exactly. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with me. Oh, my pleasure. And you know, one thing I would add to it, in your book, you share personal stories. So it's not just the stories of other people, but you share your own stories, which I really enjoyed because it really helps us to understand how you came up with this model. I think it's also important people to note that when we talk about that S-curve, it's almost like the thread that carries through the whole process. There's this underlying need that we are fulfilling. And I've always told people, if you look at the different experiences, different careers I've had, it seems very disruptive because I'm always jumping from one S-curve to the other. But the shape, the underlying thread connecting them all has always been that drive to help others be better and to live the lives that they want and need to live. And so if you recognize that thread, it becomes very easy to help you understand how to make that next jump because that's the focal point. So when you understand that focal point, you know which S-curves you want to jump on in order to create that life you want to live. Yeah, agreed. It, it becomes, again, it becomes a constraint, right? It, it, it has to be, that has to be there in order for you to want to jump to a particular curve. So yeah, that's a great... And I would actually argue that because of your pathology background in a clinical embryologist that you're able to, you probably always have the threat of being able to dissect and be able to understand, you know, how something works in a very unique scientific method sort of way that that to me would be a very, very much a distinctive strength um, or a strength and, and in the business field, a distinctive strength that most people simply cannot bring to bear in solving a problem. Yeah. So my two cents. Well, thanks, Whitney. I appreciate that. And you know, thank you again so much for sharing your insights and wisdom with my listeners. I really appreciated talking to you today and learning more about how we can apply that power of disruptive innovation to our work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. I've been talking with Whitney Johnson about her latest book, Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. To learn more about Whitney's book and her work looking into tapping into the power of disruptive innovation, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, 
or by filling out the contact form at TanvirNasir.com. And if you found my show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tanvir Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs>